found the Winding Road Podcast, hosted by Jason and Isaac. We're two friends who are sitting in the driveway just chatting about cars over some drinks, while two of our favorite cars are sitting behind us shining in the sun. We never know where the conversation will go, but we hope you join us. Happy Monday. Welcome back, everyone. Jason and I back here in the studio with you discussing cars again. What's on your mind tonight, Jason? Um... So, hey, Isaac, how you doing? A um, couple things. Um, I, had, I had someone reach out regarding the weather lately and how cold it's been. Um, it's, you know, one thing it's hard to figure out how you want to dress, right? So I'm going to need a winter jacket in the, in the morning and then I need short sleeves for my drive home with the windows down. Yeah. Um, but I had, I had one of our listeners asked what, you know, about warming the car up in the morning. This <laughs> In my opinion, shouldn't be a question that we should be discussing in mid-April. <laughs> but um, I think it's a, a I think it's a common a common thing that a lot of people think about. Um, mm. And uh, so, what are your thoughts on that? There are that's a rakes and landmines conversation mm. uh, topic. Uh, there are many different opinions about it. Um, anything from you know, let the car warm up for 15 minutes to a half hour um, to turn it on and go um, mm-hmm. and any, anything in between. Okay. Uh, the general rule of thumb that I've always kind of gone by is, well, not rule of thumb, but to be honest with you, I pretty much always, unless I'm cleaning snow off my car, I pretty much always turn the car on, put my, my seatbelt on like got the radio where I wanted it and I go like within 30 seconds I'm moving um, or less. Uh, I've never really let my car warm up. The only time I really have is when, like I said, I was cleaning off snow. Like I would start it up and start cleaning off the glass and I turn on the rear defrost and whatever, and let the car kind of do its thing. And then mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that. But other than that, to this day, I still turn the car on. I buckle the seatbelt, turn the lights on, and I'm gone. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some reasons for there are some reasons to do that immediate start up and go. There are some reasons to let the car warm up. Mm-hmm. Um, it just depends on you know what your thought process is. For newer cars, their catalysts are designed. Um, very close to the to the exhaust or in some of them are part of the exhaust manifold so mm-hmm. like right as the exhaust is coming out of the engine it's in that catalytic converter and the point of that is to get the catalyst to heat up quickly and start becoming more efficient and so then you uh, your fuel economy improves your emissions improve uh, because it's not going just through the the media it's actually being processed by the catalyst the quicker you can heat your engine up the quicker that you will get interior temperature and the quicker that your catalyst will heat up and you'll get better fuel economy because you'll your car will go out of rich mode and into lean mode. Um, and the best way to do that is actually to start driving the car right away. Now, that being said, you don't like obviously go out and, you know, beat the crap out of it. Uh, <laughs> generally, what I'll do is I like in commuting mode, I'll shift between two and three thousand RPM. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of what you do. And then I don't, I actually have my heat turned off until the temperature gauge gets to the middle to mm-hmm. where the coolant up the temperature. Um, but the 
oil actually gets up to temperature slower than coolant does. And so while the coolant temperature might be where it needs to be, everything else is still warming up in the car. And so you don't, no matter what kind of car you have, you don't want to like be beating on it right away, but starting driving right away and just casually getting up to speed and, you know, things like that, that will definitely help the car to get up to its optimal temperature quicker, which is healthier in the healthier for the engine. So that's a very long way of saying the quicker you can get the car up to temperature, the healthier it is for the engine. And the best way to do that is to start driving right away. In a responsible manner, you're not like be, you know, right. redlining, not redlining the thing to get it up there. Right. Whereas uh, if you let it, for example, car starters, they're very popular because you can let the car warm up, you get the yeah. interior temperature up, up, you know, warm, that way you get into a warm, warm car. Well, mm -hmm. the whole time it's sitting there, 5, 10, 15 minutes, I've seen people let their cars run for a half hour. That's one, wasting fuel. It's hurting the environment, so to speak, because, you know, it's just, it's unused. Like the energy is not doing anything. The fuel's being burned. Nothing is happening except for it's warming the interior of your car. So it's, it's it makes for less fuel economy. It makes for unneeded emissions into the atmosphere and it takes everything in the car longer to heat up because it's not actually doing something it's just mm -hmm. idling and so it's a little bit actually detrimental to the car um but yeah there's people that swear by one way there's people swear by another way um, i've i've heard from people who build engines professionally the best thing to do is to start the car and drive off right away so you know, engine manufacturers also tell you not to let your car warm up. So I'll follow their advice. Sure. Yeah. Um, so do, do the turbo car um, use oil to cool the turbos a lot of times, don't they? Uh, depends on, on the on the car. Some are oil cooled, some are liquid cooled and oil cooled. I don't think any are only water cooled, but they're all oil cooled. Some... I think the really high-end ones might also have um, engine coolant running through them besides oil, but uh -huh. mostly it's oil cooled. So on, on my car, um, what sometimes I do is there's a uh, a lap timer. Well, I'm sure I could probably code it in with with the uh, whatever that OBD11 that I have. Mm -hmm. um, but if you turn it on to track a lap timer, it gives you the um, oil temp, which is nice, and until it gets to, I don't know, 150, it's just three blank lines. Mm -hmm. So I always sometimes, you know, when I'm driving to warm the car up, I'll, I'll just go into that mode real quick just to see what we're looking at as far as oil temps concerned before we get into any kind of spirited driving on the highway. Yeah, and that's a good thing to do. Most cars don't have active gauges because people tend to freak out when they, because a, a real coolant gauge, like, most cars have coolant temperature gauges. Mm -hmm. um, real gauges will actually fluctuate as the car goes through different, um, like into a valley or when you're climbing a hill or when mm -hmm. you're sitting in traffic, things like that. The temperature actually fluctuates all the time. But mm -hmm. people who don't know much about cars, which is a lot of people, mm -hmm. um, when they see the coolant temperature rising, they are assuming that something's wrong with the car because it's not going to stop. But right. not realizing that, like when you're sitting in traffic idling and the car is just heat soaking, uh, or when you're climbing a hill, the engine's working harder. And so the temperature is going to rise a little bit. 
and then the cooling system does its job. The temperature starts coming down, or if you go through a cool patch, you know, um, this is really evident if you're on a motorcycle, actually, when you're exposed to the elements, mm -hmm. because you can be like going on a ride through the woods and all of a sudden you hit this dense forested area and you're like 15 degrees cooler than you were, you know, a quarter mile back. And it's really eye-opening to know, to see and experience the different climate or subclimates that the car experiences. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, but anyway, what I was getting at is most gauges like that aren't, aren't live. They're kind of like, they're always at neutral unless something extreme happens and then it's just pegged at hot or whatever. Sure. But yeah, it's a good, it's a good thing to have. My car only has a, a coolant temp gauge. Uh, it's got, so with Porsche gauges, it's the center gauges attack. And then there's a left and a right gauge, uh, one for the speedometer, one for fuel and one for uh, like fuel and coolant are in one. The 911s have a larger gauge cluster with two more rings. And one of them is an oil temperature gauge and something else. Mm -hmm. So um, you, you mentioning that you monitor that made me, gave me a quick thought, maybe I should look at installing like an oil temp gauge in my car, because I would like to know what the temperature is doing um, at certain points, uh, you know, in the warm up process and stuff like that. But that's you, a good, you, that's a good thing you do. Well, thanks. You have an, OB, uh, an OBD port on that thing, right? That car, your car? Yeah, all cars do. So in 1995, uh, OBD, actually it was before that, there's something called OBD-O or OBD-0. And that started in, I think, the late 80s. And then in 95, OBD-1 came out. And then, or maybe it's OBD-2, I don't know. But anyway, there's different versions of it. Um, but all cars have to have that diagnostic port. Okay. The other thing, just just a quick note, you were talking about catalysts, um, and I I just started thinking about that. I wonder I've, if you if I really start to think about it, um, I, I'm wondering if in recent years with the environment and everything, uh, automakers have kind of redesigned the location of catalytic converters because I always used to love the smell of a car warming up on a cold start. You know, it was just like a rich, like gasoline, like good smell. And I don't really smell that too much anymore on new cars. Is that, is that like, does, does ever think of that or, or do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You're, you're experiencing what is happening in the, in the car industry. Like, so the catalytic converters used to be underneath the car, you mm -hmm. know, somewhere in the exhaust stream um, at various places, but generally underneath the car. And then companies started finding out there are various reasons, like advantageous reasons why you want to put the catalyst closer to the engine. And so over time, they've started getting closer to the engine um, because Basically, the catalyst is kind of like if you open it up, the catalytic converter it is kind of like a football shaped thing on the outside. On the inside, it's like these discs that look like a honeycomb almost. Or like, no, if you took uh, cardboard and rolled it into a spiral and looked at the end of it where it had like a straight piece of cardboard, the two layers and then a squiggly line bet between it. If you rolled that up into a spiral, and looked at the end of it, that's what a catalyst looks like on the inside. 
-hmm. And there's precious metals in there that react to the exhaust flowing past it. And the quicker that those get heated up, the quicker they start reacting to the exhaust. So mm -hmm. like when they're cold, um, they're not doing anything, but when they're hot enough to temperature, that's when they're converting the bad piece parts of the exhaust fumes into more neutral things or neutral things. And so the quicker you can get them working, the better it is one for the environment, also for fuel economy. Um, and to some extent, engine longevity. Mm -hmm. And so over time, it's gotten to the point where there are literally catalytic converters hanging off the side of the engine and it's part of the exhaust manifold. And so like back in the day, you would have a header or exhaust manifold that you know has pipes that are six, 10 inches long, and then they meet at a collector and then it's a catalytic converter. Well, now you have the exhaust and it's literally a cast piece of metal where the, the exhaust port is about an inch long and then it's already in the catalytic converter. Before it even hits any mufflers or anything like that. Yeah, like it's, you can see it in the engine bay where it used to be underneath the car. Curious, I'm curious as to location on mine because I mean, the turbo is in the engine. Yours bay, is hanging basically. off the back of the turbo. Oh, it's off the, it's off the turbo? Mm-hmm. So that's good because it makes it probably harder to steal. I know people are like on the Civics, they just cut them right off because I think they're yeah, underneath the car. It's, it's something that used to happen um, and it still does occasionally on the right vehicles, but um, a lot of cars are moving up underneath, you know, inside the engine compartment. So I have to go. I, uh, I just have to tell you because it's a recurring theme in our podcast here. Um, but I think I distinctly remember we had a 95 Mark 8, you know, which had the 32 valve eight cylinder. So probably emitted a lot of emissions, no pun intended. But um, just when I was a kid, I, you know, it was 95. So I just remember just like, just standing behind the car like, when it was warming up in the, in the wintertime. It's like, oh, my God, that smells so good. <laughs> yeah, and, I yeah. mean – Catalyst technology in general has changed since then. So it's a combination of the location of them and the efficiency of them. But yeah, generally, if you smell that from a newer car, it's probably not working properly or it's just really cold. Yeah. Good to know. So that's uh, interesting information. Another recurring theme. I won't speak too long on it, but I just have to say I saw another Elantra end today on my commute. Okay. And it was black and it looked awesome. And I'm seriously considering checking it out. Yeah. Listeners should take note. He said, seriously considering checking it out. That doesn't mean <laughs> he's actually going to buy one or that he wants to get rid of his S3. He's considering looking at it. And, and uh, you can ask my wife in, uh, in Jason speak, that's getting pretty close to getting serious. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, in real, all reality, I'll probably just keep driving my S3 while building numerous Elantra ends on the Hyundai website. Yeah. <laughs> but that's quick, uh, quick, uh, quick rundown of things that um, I guess transpired since our last talk on my end. How about you? What's, uh, what's on your mind? Well, my car sighting this week is yesterday, right? Or not yesterday, today, uh, right before I turned onto our road. I passed like a 63-ish um, Corvette convertible. Ooh. It was black with a white top. 
Uh, I don't feel like I see a lot of those in convertible. I mean, mm-hmm. they are around occasionally, but I know the coveted ones are the uh, split window stingrays. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, it was nice seeing it, but I, the color combination I didn't think was really that great. Black with a white top. It just was like, yeah, you know, whatever. Um, so. Yeah, that was what I saw today. I see. I feel like you see these these sightings on sp- and interesting days. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you would think that you'd see them on you know c- cruising around on yeah. Saturday or Sunday, yeah. but you're seeing you're seeing them during the week. You know, which yeah, is, which is cool. It's good to see that people have their classics out. You know, on the on the road on the way to work on a Monday. Yeah, it was on the way home. It was like mm-hmm. literally six thirty um, that I passed it, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. So. Yeah, I waved to him and everything. And then I told you the other day, I saw a McLaren on the way home. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the, how to tell the McLarens apart. It was probably mm-hmm. a 650 or a 675 or something like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was one of the newer ones. And there there was, I haven't seen it. I've only ever seen it once. But five, four or five years ago, there was a an orange McLaren MC12-4C that was driving pulling out of one of the developments on our road um so it took me a while to figure out what it was because i hadn't seen one in so long i had to google search a couple of different cars till i figured out what it was um but the mc12-4c or mc4-12c i don't remember what it's called um that was like 05 ish so it was mm-hmm. like you know 15 year old car yeah, it's interesting that you see something like that you know that vehicle kind of riding around that old usually when they get to that older people are just storing them away and not really taking them out that often yeah i mean granted i only saw it that once so it probably does sit around a lot was it was there a mclaren f1 yeah that was that, in 94. That thinking? and it, it kind of had like the center seat around two yeah. and two seats in the back yeah like surrounding like the cockpit kind of thing mm-hmm. i always thought that was a really interesting vehicle design I mean, I don't think I'm, I don't, I mean, I've never seen one in, in, you know, at a car show or anything like that. Yeah. They're very uncommon um, and they're becoming more uncommon and they require their own dedicated computer uh, for diagnostic work. And it's a computer from, you know, 25 years ago. And so there are very few people that know how to use them. And uh, I've heard recently that, BMW is trying to come up with a way for modern scan tools to put some kind of an adapter between a modern scan tool and the old one because they have BMW engines in them. Okay. Um, I've heard that BMW is trying to figure out a way that or has figured out a way that they can somewhat get into it with modern scan tools. Wow. Um, It's not much of an exaggeration, but there are like a handful of those scan tools left in the world um, to work on those cars. Oh my god, that's insane! You make you make a rare car even rarer. No one at work is are really is car. You're a car enthusiast, but um, it's interesting because like, oh, look at that pickup truck over there. That's so weird. What, you know, what is that? And uh, you know, I didn't even realize what it was. And then someone went went actually went out there and were like, it says R I V. Like on you know, spelled it out. <laughs> they didn't know how to like, pronounce it. Yeah. I was like, oh my god, we were just talking about these Rivians. I've never seen one before, and it was at the Lowe's parking lot for of all yeah. things. Yes, yeah. you mentioned it last week. Um, and I 
they look. Oh, I did. I mentioned. I didn't know yeah. if, I, if I just listened or not. I find them interesting because they look big in photos, but when you compare them in size to other, uh, like the competitors or yeah. trucks that it competes with, it's smaller. It is. It's like it's a little bit bigger than like a Colorado or the the current Ranger. Mm-hmm. Which, but when you look at it in photos, it looks massive. It looks like the Hummer size. You know, the new the new Hummer EV. It looks yeah. like that size, but it's way smaller. Are um, they out? Are they on the roads yet? I don't know. Um, I think they're starting to build them. I know. I saw uh, the YouTube channel Engineering Explain. Jason Fenske. He just posted a video about one. Like the the media outlets are starting to get them. That's the one that I send to you sometimes, right? That guy. Yeah. Jason Finsky. I like I like yeah. his stuff so much. It's really uh I feel like it's very educational. Yeah, for sure. Um so yeah, they're starting to make their rounds. I believe they're starting to get out to to buyers. Um, but they are they're very large. Um, but if you want to see a good size and performance comparison, Jason Camisa, he's he used to be a motor trend editor, he's worked worked for some other magazines currently works for Haggerty. Um, mm-hmm. He did a video recently comparing the Raptor and the Ram TRX and the Rivian. Um, and those things just like dwarf the Rivian. It's It just looks so tiny. I remember reading Motor Trend and you know having them do the shootouts, the truck shootouts where they take them on the road and compare them. I feel like maybe because I'm not really reading those magazines anymore, but do they still do that kind of? Have you seen that stuff happening in magazines or yeah, like they outs- still do. outside of like YouTube? They still do yeah. that stuff. Yeah, I I actually I subscribed to Motor Trend. I think I started when I was like 12 or 13, and I just let it run out last year because you know every other article in there is you know comparing these five SUVs or comparing these three electric cars. And it's like or comparing these two you know multi-million dollar super exotics it's like yeah i just can't really i i am over it i guess um yep. so i just while the subscription is pretty cheap i i just let it go like finally finally decided to just let it expire and stuff do you um, have any current uh subscriptions or anything no i had um I think it actually just ran out on me. Hemmings. Kelsey had gotten me a subscription to Hemmings for uh, like a year or two. Okay. And uh, I'm always like, oh, I'm going to get a project car or, you know, I'm always looking for something. And um, that's a good spot to look for them or get ideas. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'll never, never really get around to it. Right. Um, Audi makes an interesting magazine. The Quattro magazine, and then it comes out quarterly, which actually is pretty cool. I've never you, seen that. You never seen I've that? never really read through it. There's probably you know an issue or two laying around the dealership, but I've I've never really seen them. It's pretty cool. I mean, you know, obviously it's got a lot of Audi stuff in it, but uh, it's actually pretty informative, um, and surprisingly. Um, oh, real quick, back to the Hummers. Um, you you're probably familiar with the, the crab walk that they do mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that um i think that's actually helpful in real life or i think it's just like a something else that's going to break in 10 years and we'll be able to get repaired 
It's it's just a gimmick. Like, yeah. you know, Tesla's Model X has its Goldwing doors or not Goldwing, the Falcon doors. Um, they've they've kind of all got their their like shining halo gimmick thing to to sell and um it's definitely a capable vehicle but you know it's just kind of one of those things it's going to be like hey look what this can do and then it's going to wear off and be okay whatever i wonder if that is i wonder if that's a um like a feature on like the higher end trim lines or if that's a standard on all of them uh i'm not sure that that reminds me of guy what were those I think it was the GMC Sierras from the '90s that had four wheels, four wheel steering. Yeah, the C3s. And um, now, I mean, if you find one of those things, like, it's they're usually non-functioning, but yeah. one ones that's actually functioning um, fetch you know a good amount of money. Plus, I'm sure you can't get parts for those things anymore to repair those worn out, you know. Components. I feel like a lot of people probably just converted them to regular straight axles whenever they broke because it was cheaper. Yeah. Pretty cool idea, though. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely functional, uh, especially on a large vehicle like that. It can help your turning radius and be more agile and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was definitely uh, early. Like, it wasn't the first car to do it. It was the first truck I've ever heard doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, from what I know, the first car to do it was the Prelude in the 80s. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That. yeah. Um, and then uh, I think the 300Z or ZX did it in the 90s. And then the last five or 10 years, a lot of companies are starting to put it on their cars. Interesting. And, you know, various because like various ways that they're implementing it. Mm-hmm. One of them I heard recently was oh the mercedes eqs it's their new electric sedan it's supposed to be like their electric s S class Mm -hmm. um that one actually has really extreme um rear steer like because usually when when a car has rear steer if you just turn the wheel a little bit like you're merging like changing lanes the rear wheels will only move by like three or four degrees so it's kind of like you're slanting into the lane and then if you are like doing a parking maneuver and you turn a wheel like full lock, then they turn the opposite direction of the front tires and it effectively shortens the length of the car and makes you do, you know, a smaller turn. Um, but the EQS apparently has a really extreme rear steer because like you can actually visibly see the tires come out, you know. You said EQX, like X-ray? No, EQS oh. as in Sierra. So, but yeah, that one's pretty extreme, but most of the high-end cars have it now. Like a lot mm-hmm. of the high-end Audis have it. Um, I'm really? sure BMW's got it on some of theirs. Yeah. Wow. I had no idea. And actually, I don't know if I've ever, I know I've never shown you a picture. I don't know if I still have it. Um, but on some of the Audi models, like the, the current A8s, mm-hmm. if you get a certain suspension or a certain package, it actually has an electric uh, rear sta- uh, sway bar mm-hmm. it's not a bar basically it's this big tube that is runs the length of the or the width of the car and then there's an electric motor on each end and it can physically lift the tire like a half inch off the ground and what it's designed to do is it will use the cameras and the st- stuff like that and if it senses um, 
a pothole coming, it will lift the tire Jeez. over the pothole. Or um, what it's mostly designed for is like when you're going around a corner, it will push the tire in one direction and pull the, one of the other tires in another direction to keep the car level um, to, around the corner. It's almost like mag ride kind of. It's different like way, than that. Way back, but like, like tries to do the same, like accomplish the same goal essentially. No, because the it also the car also has air ride. So like the mm. mag ride is good at varying the response of the shocks. So generally with shocks, you can either have a really stiff shock that that reduces body roll, or you have a soft shock that um, has a softer ride. Well, Magna ride or air shocks, they do something like that where they can vary that quickly. So mm -hmm. they can go from soft to quick or soft to firm very quickly. Um, this actually affects, it works in conjunction with those systems to do other things. Back to the rear steer, just curious, does that make it any more difficult to do an alignment or like any more, um, you know, like I'm sure there's more, obviously there's more moving parts there. So I would imagine that, you know, there's more of an in-depth alignment process. Uh, yeah, I'm generally, so just for the alignment part of it, it's almost like you have, it's almost like you're doing two front end alignments because okay. like in the front you have the toe or the tie rods to adjust the toe and stuff like that. Cars have had those in the, with independent suspension, have had those in the back for a while, but these are more like the front now because you've got steering knuckles on both front and back. And mm -hmm. so it's almost like you have two front suspensions, but beyond that alignments and things have gotten more complicated with the jaw, the driver assist features on cars now, like, cause they, they're the cameras and the radars and the um, lasers and stuff like that to various degrees. A lot of times, when you do an alignment now, you have to recalibrate all of those systems. So it's now not just an old school front end alignment where you adjust the front tires. Now you're doing the front tires, the back tires, you're adjusting cameras, you're reprogramming things, you're taking measurements, you're- Jeez. Oh yeah. You, you no longer just hanging the, hanging the thing on the wheels and you nope. know, turning, uh, turning a couple of screws. Nope. There's, there's some Audi uh, alignments you know, that are pushing $1,000. Oh my gosh, that's absurd. <laughs> and we're not the only ones, you know, BMW and Mercedes are going to have the same type of tech. So, well, yeah, it's everything. It's everything, right? Everything's just getting so, um, yeah. And then like, when you think of that, think, think about what's involved when you, cause it's not really, you don't hear about it as much anymore, but a few years ago, you were hearing about a lot about autonomous cars coming. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, everyone started figuring out that that's not going to be something that's going to be happening anytime soon because there's a lot of things to figure out, you know, safety wise mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But to make a car capable of that, all of these different things have to be working, like all these sensors and cameras and, and things. And all of those things are based on values that are entered into a computer. And so whenever you change something, there are a lot of other things that have to be done to make sure that they work properly. Right. Wow. So many, uh, so many computers and electronics in these vehicles today. 
on my way home today, I came across an RCF, Lexus RCF, mm-hmm. which I don't, you know, I've always been a fan of the of those, specifically ISF. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like you don't see them around too often. Um, and usually when I see one, it's you know, passing me or going the other direction or whatever. But this one got this got this. I was pretty much like riding with me the whole time, um, but the traffic was just so bad that it wasn't really able to do anything. But I noticed he had a dash cam on his car too, mm-hmm. which uh, I, you know, says a couple of things. I think about the driver. Obviously, he's an enthusiast guy. He probably recorded his drives. So was it an F or an F Sport? It was an F. Okay. Yeah. Like, you know, whenever I, you know, whenever I see those things, it's, it's like, oh, is that, you know, is that an F Sport or is that an F? And I always just, First of all, it sounded like it had the V8 in it, and then yeah. you know, it's, you know the taillights are kind of um, on that. They're like on top of each other, or top, not the taillights, the exhaust. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yep, and that's yep. just a giveaway of those things. And I was like, oh man, it's a real one. Mm-hmm. So I kind of rode around him for a little bit. Yeah, they're they're kind of equivalent to like an RS5 from Audi or like mm-hmm. a C63 AMG from Mercedes. As far as the the market they're going after, I feel like. I don't know if it fits with the average buyer of the Lexus brand. I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, one, it's a coupe. Like, they don't sell many RCs to begin with. Mm-hmm. And then if they do, it's probably just the, you know, the RC350, you know, normal, you know, coupe with the all-wheel drive. Um, but, like, to have a 500-horsepower V8 with, you know, like all this stuff, they just don't sell them because it's not what most Lexus buyers want. And if you want a car like that, you're probably not going to Lexus at the same time. Valid. Like the only reason you would buy that car is if you want a car like that, but want a Japanese car for the quote reliability as opposed to going German. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a very small buyer who wants Japanese reliability and a high-performance sports coupe. That's a very, buy- it's a very yeah. niche buyer. Yeah, and think of it like that. Still interesting, though. Never, never, you know, I haven't. No, yeah, see, I don't, don't see them too often. And the funny thing about it, I don't know if you know this. What car do you think that's related to? Are we talking in the same like uh, in, Le- in Lexus line or? Yeah, like how they create that model. I want to say the LFA. No. No. Um, can I get another guess? Yeah. Um, from the Camry? <laughs> no. So <laughs> I was gonna go. I was like, let me go both extremes. <laughs> so, like for example, to compare the Audi A5 and S5 and RS5, they are a two-door version of like, or they're related to the A4. Um, you know, they're a variation of the A4. Okay, and the then you have the Mercedes, you have like the C Class that just comes in coupe and convertible. It's basically a shortened two door version of the four door C Class. Uh-huh. And then BMW, the M4 or the, the four series is a two door version of you know the three series. And so it's just a shortened two door version of that. Uh-huh. So you would think that it would come from the IS, which is their small sports sedan. Mm-hmm. And that's only half true. So the front of it is an IS. And you'll, you know, you can see it looks like the IS, but the back of it is actually related to the GS, which is their larger sedan. So it's like, Mm. if you took, if you cut their IS 
in half and you took the front of it and you cut the GS in half and you took the back of it. Now, styling wise, it's not the back, but it's like the, the running gear and, and suspension and stuff like that. But they basically welded two cars together, a smaller car and a bigger car. And that's how they got this car. Interesting. While we're on, well, we I think we always kind of talk about foreign cars for some reason. Well, I, I guess it's not true. We talk about kind of stuff. Um, but a buddy of mine currently is overseas serving in the National Guard. And uh, he, he messaged me today. He's like, oh, I just did three hours on the Autobahn in a three series. So I was asking him what that was like. It's pretty cool. I've never been, mm-hmm. obviously, I've never been on the Autobahn, but I always wonder what that's like. You see all the videos and stuff on YouTube. Yeah. And it's, I don't know. I mean, I want to get there sooner rather than later because I've, like, a lot of it is now not de-restricted. So there are speed limits on a lot of it now. And there are only, so like, I think there's like 10 or 20% that's de-restricted. And I've heard that there's been a push to put a speed limit on the whole Audubon. Granted, it's probably going to be more than 55 or 65 miles an hour like we have here in the States. But, you know, wow. I, I'd like to get there before that goes away. Yeah. And I wonder if there's been, a, you know, get a lot of accidents lately or something and why they... I don't know. I, that. I don't know if it has had an increase in, like, fatal accidents because um, they've generally been fairly low from what I understand is that you would think it would be, you know, here in America, we tend to think that speed kills and that, you know, yeah. if you're going 150 miles an hour, that, you know, there's going to be all these horrible accidents when actually it's not the case because one, they have a better licensing system over there and you have more responsible drivers and more educated drivers, I should say, more educated drivers. Um, and two, there's like three or four lanes in the de-restricted areas and like, trucks and, and slower cars will stay in like the right two lanes. Like they're trained to do that. Unless mm-hmm. you're doing super high speed, you stay out of the left lane, unlike here in America. And so it's very much, it's much more structured over there in that process. And so it's safer to have cars doing 150 miles an hour in the far left lane and cars and trucks doing 80 miles an hour in the right lane. Yeah, until you get that American tourist that exactly into the left lane doing 65. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you're right. I, I have heard that before where, um, you know, I always heard the debate where American drivers are hanging out in the left-hand lane, you know, when, when a lot of European drivers strictly only use the left or, you know, middle lane or whatever to pass, and then they get right back in. It's a very strict law over there. Like, mm-hmm. you can get like heavy fines and points in your license if you if you're in one of the you know the passing lanes and not passing or not doing a certain speed like they actually take it seriously mm. over there like it costs in some countries it costs like the equivalent to three thousand dollars to get your driver's license oh my gosh and you go through two to three years of training um in all kinds of weather conditions and it's very <sighs> it's a much more rigorous test to get your license in a lot Jeez. of European countries. Wow, you know, here that's here intense. we pretty much pull it out of a tra- cracker jack box and hey, there you go. You can drive. Yeah, right. <laughs> wow. That's oh, it's, hey, it's, it's interesting information. I didn't I didn't realize it was that that difficult. What else is going on? What else you got? I've been focusing more on trying to plan my summer drives this year. Mm. So I think I've come up I actually modified the route that I sent you the other day. I think I've mm. come up with a route that I'd like to do 
Um, and round trip out and back, it's a nine hour total drive time. Okay. And it stays in one state. <laughs> wow, really? Yeah. Um, so the one I sent you yesterday, I kind of, I get on the, on the turnpike and I go out to Carlisle and okay. then I kind of, I ridge hop all the way up to like the Williamsport area and then I come home. And basically by ridge hop uh, through the central part of Pennsylvania, the Appalachian mountains go through the state. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the maps, you can actually see like the various ridges as you go north through the state. And when you're looking at a map, you can see like a road, it'll do, it'll be straight. And then it'd be like a zigzag. And basically what that's doing is it's climbing up the one side of the ridge and then it's going down the other side of the ridge and back and forth. And I found about 90 miles of just going over six or seven ridges and then down through valleys and stuff. And um, so it looks like a nice, a nice drive. So I'm focusing on that area because I wasn't sure if I wanted to try to hit the tail of the dragon um, all the way down in like Tennessee and North Carolina, which would involve eight to 10 hours of just highway driving just to get there just to get there yeah to drive for an hour and a half and then i've mm -hmm. got to drive nine hours back mm -hmm. um i didn't really know which way i wanted to go if i wanted to go to ohio or somewhere west i pretty much have to go through all of pennsylvania and then all of whatever other states are you know past there to get to wherever i want to go and i don't know if there's good driving roads out there so i was just doing some more thinking and i think at least for this trip, since I wanted to be at like a three day trip that this is probably what I'll focus on. So like I would drive out to like uh, Carlisle, stay the night, and then I would just drive the next day for like four or five hours, stay the night and then drive home the next day. It's just an Isaac solo trip, right? Yeah. Any any particular reason for Carlisle? You get hitting up any shows or anything? It's just that's the no. direction you're going in. That's just... Um, was a good spot to it puts me right not in the center of the state but it kind of in the center of the Appalachian strip that goes through the state mm -hmm. and so if I if you look straight north from Carlisle then you're you're crossing over multiple ridges and um, stuff like that so it looks like a, a nice part of the state to be without going all the way west to Pittsburgh and Erie um, or going you know straight north to to the the Poconos um, mm -hmm. This is kind of because there's kind of like as far as mountainous regions, there's like Poconos and their Appalachians and the Alleghenies. I think this would be a nice drive. It'll get me on some of the roads that I haven't been on for a long time as well that mm -hmm. I know are fairly decent. So, yeah, some of it will be familiar. Some of it will be new, which is a great mix. When are you planning on uh, going out that way? I don't know. It's, summer, it's summertime, right? Like, obviously. Yeah, probably somewhere between July and September, but we'll see what happens. You gonna are you gonna put the GoPro on for that? Yeah, I'll probably have to get some more batteries because um, that way I have extra ones because I'll, you know, they're not gonna. I don't have nine hours worth of batteries right now. I probably have three or four hours worth of batteries. Maybe chargeable. Yeah, and you can't. You can't. It's hard to do in the car though. Yeah, because I, I don't know much about those things. And my my dad's got a Tacoma, and they actually have like a GoPro. Um, like mount on the interior of the windshield, which is kind of mm -hmm. cool that they come that way. But I don't know much. I don't know much about GoPros. Um, 
And kind of the, one of the reasons why I got my dash cam was because I, I was thinking it would be like a GoPro, but like that's what I wanted to use it for, but it's not really set up that way. Right. Um, but can you, can you wire those things in the GoPro? I'm sure you, you could if you wanted out? to. Um, cause they have, they have a charging door. Um, and they have doors that you could, like, I could take my, the battery cover door, I could take that off and put one that's because the, the charge port is behind the door and uh-huh. I could, they make a, a charging door or a battery cover that has a, a through port. So you can plug in the cord um, and then you can hook it up to like a tripod or whatever you're using. Uh-huh. So I could, I could run a cord from the GoPro just straight to a power outlet. Problem is my power outlets are buried in my car. So mm-hmm. I'd have to have like six feet of cord running to keep it charged. Although thinking about it, I could plug it in and charge it. Cause I do have a dual battery charger. I could plug that into the car while I'm driving. Um, I don't know. I haven't thought about it that far. It's your, doable. Your, um, your uh, radar detector. That that power source almost looks like a um, like a phone jack, right? Yeah. Okay, so that wouldn't be able to work for something like that. Right. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, it's very yeah, it similar seems, to a phone jack. Which is weird. I don't know why. Yeah. It's like it's like well, I guess maybe it is getting a signal. I mean, it's getting a signal, right? I guess or using sonar well, or something. It's just getting power from the car. That's it. Mm. Like all the all the reading and everything is done in the inside the unit mm. it just needs power so why they use a phone jack i have no idea but it's not it's several brands that do it so it's not like it's just one brand that does it but my wife and my father-in-law have escort models and they've had several generations and they all use that that phone jack style and then i have um i have a unit in that i picked up for free somehow and that one also uses a phone jack. So apparently there's something the radar detector companies like about that type of connection. I'm sure they have a reason for it. Um, I'm not very familiar with, with those things. So you know, forgive me, but is Uninin a, a, good, a good manufacturer for those? Uh, there are three, three or four major manufacturers. There's Valentine, um, there's Escort, there's Uninin and Cobra is one you'll see in like a lot of stores like like Walmart or Radio Shack or something like that. If Radio mm-hmm. Shack's even around anymore, geez, I'm dating myself. Um, is it? I don't know. Remember, <laughs> remember, remember Circuit City? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> so, like, those are the big three: is is Valentine, Valentine or Valentine, and uh, Escort and Uniden. I would imagine the market for those things has shrunken a little bit with with like how GPS you know basically can tell you where those things are. Uh, I don't know if that's had an effect on it because you're talking about like ways and stuff, but that's yeah. that can be helpful, but it's not necessarily live. Like there's yeah. always a delay because it takes you know you yeah. have to input that you've seen a cop, and then yeah. ways waits until like five or six other people have agreed. For it, to oh. be, for it to be like real and then you know 10 minutes later it could still show up on the map but the cop has since gone because he's mm. chasing somebody or he's just decided not to be parked there anymore 
So mm-hmm. there is somewhat of a delay to it. And they're getting better pro- than they, they used to be. They used to like false positive a lot, like yeah. because of like, you know, garage doors or or sliding doors in like a shopping center or yeah. uh, things like a lot of that. A lot of the newer ones have ways to filter those out. Uh-huh. The biggest, the hardest thing right now is is the blind spot monitoring on cars. Okay. Um, some of them are easier to filter out than others. The mm-hmm. hardest ones are Honda and Acura systems. Her her dad gave me one of his old ones from like twelve years ago, and that thing it goes off for everything because it yeah. doesn't have the technology to filter out because it was around before blind spot monitoring and stuff like that. Interesting. But the one I have. And their newer models that they each have, um, my wife and her dad, they have the ability to filter that out. So like they're pretty much silent the whole time until we get behind or around an Acura or a Honda because something that they do, their radar signature is different and they just can't. Companies have difficulty filtering those out, but most systems it can. I remember I had one years ago. I don't even know what it was. It, yeah, I probably some cheap one that I just bought because I was a kid. And like you needed it for my 88 Mustang because it was so <laughs> fast that I needed a radar detector for it. <laughs> yeah. But I remember, I remember um, every time you go to like a shopping center or something like that, it would just go nuts because of sliding doors. Yeah. That was, that was back. I don't even remember when it was. That was probably like the early 2000s, maybe something like that. How much, what do these things run these days for a good one? If you were going to get like a, like a decent, not like super high end, but also not like the cheapest, what would someone expect uh, to pay for something like that? The middle road is about 400 bucks. Wow. That's way more like, than I thought. Yeah. I think they, depending on the, the brand and stuff, they started like two, 250. Um, mm. Road's like four something. And then mm. the top of the line is, you know, six, 650 mm-hmm. and then like the one that her dad has he could also pay for a subscription that has like live you know monitoring kind of like a combination of the radar detector and ways so mm-hmm. like other users that are on this app with a subscription their detectors will report to the cloud when they spot something or when they pick up on something mm-hmm. and then it broadcasts that to all the other detectors in the area interesting so so the detectors are like the AI and the detectors is they're talking to each other through the cloud to help, you know, alert the driver quicker of something. That's interesting to me because like, I'm assuming they're all legal to use because I know some places the cops, it's not legal for them to use radar detectors. Well, and see, that's the thing. There's a lot of laws around stuff like this, like in Virginia, radar detectors are illegal completely um in states like pennsylvania it depends on where you live whether or not it's worthwhile having one Mm -hmm. like where i grew up there weren't a lot of local townships that had their own police departments um and the reason that's important is local municipalities in pennsylvania are not allowed to have or use radar they can only use lidar or um, vascar or um, a stopwatch like they aren't allowed to use radar mm-hmm. and so most detectors only pick up radar based things so it's not going to pick up lidar or vascar because they're timing devices mm. and not not radar devices um, only the state troopers can use radar 
And so depending on where you live, mm -hmm. it's like around where I live, most townships have their own police departments, which means my detector is not going to pick up most local cops. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that many state troopers around where I live. Whereas where I grew up, since most townships didn't have local police, it was most places were patrolled by state troopers. So it was more likely that a detector would pick up radar out there than where I currently live. So it kind of depends on your use case and whether or not it's worth it, because I could count probably once or twice a day back where I grew up that I would see a state trooper on the road around mm -hmm. here. I, I could probably count once a month that I see a state trooper on the road, if that. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so it's less likely that I'm going to trigger be triggered by a state trooper. That's interesting. That's good. You know, it's good, good points to think about if you're someone's in the market or thinking about purchasing one, especially for, you know, what the cost to get into one is. Uh, any closing thoughts tonight? You have any uh, plans coming up or anything you're looking forward to in the next week? car related well it was uh i i caught it a little bit too late i i wanted to i was thinking about um carlisle spring carlisle mm -hmm. and i think it started today um and i just my schedule just won't fit it in for the yeah i think it ends sunday but i always try to get to that every, every couple of years it's always a good okay. time other than that now i'm just hoping you know get get the car washed need to get that done yeah um looking for a couple you know, looking forward to the nice weather to get some good drives in there Mm -hmm. and Radwood's coming up, which I'm going to try and get to. Are you? That's, that's in May, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's um, the week before Memorial Day. I have to look at my schedule, but that, I think it's pretty close to me, right? Yeah. Is it yeah. In Chester it's, probably or ten or, it's probably 10 or 15 minutes away from you. So I'd like to try and get to that if my schedule permits. But uh, okay. other than that, not a whole lot going on, just uh, – doing my thing looking out for car sightings and you know all of the, i haven't been any cars and coffees yet but it's just having the time yeah same yeah yeah i'm hoping to get some warm weather this coming weekend so i can actually wash the cars they're filthy do you have to do them all when you when you, you, know, you do your routine or is it you just do the porsche i usually do one per weekend because uh -huh. like we talked about in a prior episode my wash routine's about three hours long so yeah uh wives tend to not like when you spend six hours cleaning cars i usually do one like i'll, I'll probably do I'll probably try to do mine this weekend and then uh i work next weekend so we'll see maybe i'll try to do hers next weekend but they're both dirty they both need to get done it's just been i've been lazy and slacking on them i didn't know if you put the same type like if you had the same three hour routine for each car or just yours uh for both i've i tried to i've tried to get into a routine where i do the same things every time in the same order that way mm -hmm. i don't miss something mm -hmm. um and then also that way it's just kind of like this is what gets done you know i do this and then i do this and that way you know if i have a, a routine in a process I, I just like that better actually i just remembered we had a listener question someone messaged me and said and i'll let you answer this first um why does everyone hate cvt transmissions so much do you um, have any experience with them jason um yeah i've had experience um my brother-in-law had a God, i want to say it was an 08 uh nissan maxima had a 3.5 in it and 
and had a CVT. Um, and and he's a good, good, great guy. Not not very much of a car guy, though. Um, so to him, he's like, oh, this is great. It's fast. It's quick. You know, it's got it's punchy. But to me, it never. I hated the fact that it never shifted. Uh, I hate. I hated that because, like, I like you know, I love the the feeling of it, like going through the gears and all that stuff. Uh-huh. And I think that I don't. I, I don't even know how how um, popular they are now. But I feel like they were popular for a little bit, and then at least in America, they they didn't get the same traction that I think the manufacturers thought they would. Attraction in the sense of people buying them. Right. Not like actual attraction. Um, but to me, it's because I think us as Americans, we're used to having cars that, you know, go through the gears and shift and all that stuff. And just it's just like an eternal first gear never, never shifts. And I, I can't stand that. So, like. I guess from a power standpoint, the power is always there. I don't even know if there are any more efficient than the, the standard automatic is but just to me i dislike them severely because of the fact that they just never shift i hate that mm-hmm. that's just that's, my rant yeah and that's i know we talked about cvts in a prior podcast um so i'd encourage everyone to go back to that i'm not sure exactly which one it is mm-hmm. but we have talked about it before um but yeah what you're saying is very consistent with what the general population feels about them. They are trying to do two different things. They're trying to have infinite number of gears so that it's under normal cruising circumstances, you can be at the lowest RPMs possible and get the best fuel efficiency. And then also at the same time, um, if you need to accelerate quickly, the engine can stay in its peak torque and peak horsepower RPM range so that you accelerate more quickly. But it doesn't feel like it because we we're programmed as humans um, driving cars over these last century. Uh, we're programmed to have the transmission shift from one gear to another, and that gives us a sense of speed and that we're gaining speed. Whereas a CVT, it can hold four thousand five hundred and twenty-two RPMs if it wants to because that's where the peak power is and that helps you accelerate the quickest. It can hold that for an infinite amount of time, but it doesn't feel like you're going fast or accelerating quickly because the engine is not increasing and then decreasing speed and increasing again. So it technically it's the perfect automatic transmission. We just don't like them as humans. Well said. I think, yeah, I think, I think it's 100 percent accurate. So, <laughs> but I would in, I would encourage uh, everyone to, because um, we are wrapping up for the night. I would encourage everyone to go back to the prior podcast. Other than that, thanks again for joining us. Uh, you can reach us by email at windingroadspodcast at gmail or on Instagram at windingroadspodcast. I uh, look forward to hearing from you again and get, taking more of your questions. Always your feedback is appreciated and we'd love it if you could rate us and review us on your podcast app of choice. That way other people can find the podcast and get the same enjoyment out of it that you have until the next time. Enjoy the drive.